Um, Jude meaning the book of Jude, not my son, but um, goes right to the book of Jude because we're finishing the book of Jude, uh, Lord willing, next week. Um, and so we look forward to that. I'm not prepared to preach that final sermon this week, so that's why we're doing something else. But uh, this is where my, my, my thoughts uh, led me, where the Lord, I believe, led me. One of the things that possibly has come out, and I know it has actually because several people have asked me in our study of Jude, which again we'll finish next week, is about the reality of God's tolerance and his patience uh, with the wicked in the midst of his people. Uh, people have asked me, you know, as we look through the book of Jude, we see so much of it centered upon the wicked who have crept in unnoticed among God's people there. And people have said, well, why does God even tolerate that? Uh, he could in a moment and with a word wipe them out. Uh, why does he allow them to be? It's a big issue, of course, in Jude. Ungodly people have crept in among God's people. And Jude is warning as he writes uh, those people uh, to be careful, to be diligent as they seek to walk faithfully uh, after the Lord Jesus Christ and not to follow uh, their teachings or their ways. And, and Jude says, as Peter here does, and we'll note that relationship again, uh, but Jude writes in this very brief letter, this has been that way from the very beginning. He goes back to Cain and Abel and how Cain and Abel displayed that, Cain killing Abel. Uh, why does God tolerate wickedness and evil? Why does he tolerate sinners in the midst of his people? Why does he tolerate sinners at all? Why are any of us still here? Why does he allow it to go on and on? Some ask about our own country. And they wonder and they question and they're concerned about our country, that we have fallen in such uh, ways of wickedness and rebellion against God that we deserve his judgment. And yet we find him to be patient. Why is he so patient? These are hard questions, but they are questions every believer has asked at some point in their lives. And so this morning, I want to look at that question from the perspective of Peter in 2 Peter 3. It's not an unfamiliar passage, for sure. It's a controversial one for many, but it's not unfamiliar. And I go to 2 Peter because of what I said in the very beginning of our study in Jude. And that is the, the content of Peter, 2 Peter and Jude, is very similar. In fact, there are quotations, statements that come one from the other. And most believe Jude was written first and then Peter but regardless of the order, they, they drew from each other, if you will, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God gave a clear testimony in both books. And this morning we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 3, especially verses 8 and 9. And so turn to that, if you will, and please stand as is our practice in 2 Peter chapter 3. For context, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. This is God's word. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, bless your word to the hearing of your people here gathered. By your spirit, move among us and press that word to our hearts and minds, that we, often weary followers of Jesus Christ, would be comforted, would know the meaning and purpose of your patience. And Father, we would glorify your name in all that we do now, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. As I've said this morning, we come to this passage. I believe, of course, you know what we teach here. You know what I believe and teach. You know what Pastor Fisher believes and teach. You know what we confess as we have a confession that our God is sovereign over all things. He has so ordered all of these things. My returning early, Pastor Fisher's sickness, my being here this morning. It's a wonderful, wonderful thought to think of those things. And in God's providence, in his sovereign will, we come to this passage this morning, uh, one that is fraught, uh, no doubt, with some difficulty, even upon the reading of it. Some may immediately think of some of the errors that have been pressed upon this text. We're looking especially at verses 8 and 9, in which these, these words have been distorted to teach all kinds of doctrines, alien and foreign to God's word. By God's grace and the blessing of his spirit, we shall see, I hope, this morning in this brief study, the correct context and how that context really helps us to properly understand this passage. And that is important, isn't it? That is the cry of the exegete, of the expositor. Uh, Our brother Nathaniel is learning that, no doubt, from the very first class at Westminster. Context, context, context. The immediate words in which they are found and their relationship to one another, the relationship of those words and verses to the immediate verses around it, then the relationship of those verses to the whole of the book and the intention of the author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, the meaning of those verses and chapters in a book to the whole of Scripture, bearing upon the text, comparing Scripture with Scripture, knowing that God is not a God who ever lies or contradicts himself. All of this bears upon our understanding of this passage. 
And so let's look at that context briefly this morning. It is clear, as Peter writes, as was clear of Jude, that he is writing to comfort these believers, these whom he calls, as Jude calls his readers, beloved, beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. He's writing to them regarding their confusion about the coming of Jesus Christ. You may remember that just prior to this, Peter was speaking more to the condition of the false teachers and of their unbelief in God's judgment. God is not coming, they say. We are okay. We can continue to do whatever it is that we do. And so Peter speaks directly to their error, reminding them that history itself is filled with people who once thought the same thing. They thought they were free of God's judgment. The people he alludes to here, who he writes of in Noah's day, thought that they were scot-free. They could do and live as they please. And yet God's judgment, we know, was building up, and that judgment was poured out in the flood. He also references the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, God being patient, allowing them to live as they lived, and then suddenly, without warning, bringing his judgment upon them. They will be proven false, Peter's point is. Their ways will be judged by God as he has promised. But as we have seen before, God's people are not immune to these false teachers. Some of them have begun to question God's truthfulness. Is Jesus really coming? Is he returning as he promised? Now We have a greater problem, don't we? We're 2,000 years into this meaning into the time when Jesus came, pronounced these promises, spoke of his judgment, says as he ascended into heaven that he is going to come again in all power and glory. And for 2,000 years, we haven't seen him, nor have we seen his judgments. Yet we've seen the wicked abound many times without any judgment in this life. We're like the psalmist in Psalm 73. Why is it that the wicked seem to prosper? They enjoy life. They live it to the fullest. They die. And nothing has ever happened to them. The same is true here, as Peter writes to those who are susceptible to these false teachers. When is the time of his coming? How long, O Lord, how long? That is precisely what Peter is dealing with in this passage be comforted, he says, and know that what God has, says, has said will come to pass in due time. But we need to see how Peter, in fact, comforts them. What he writes in these two verses, 8 and 9, is our focus. What he writes in these two verses is of utmost importance for our understanding this very dilemma, this problem that faced this people. He highlights the glory and the majesty of God. It is the very character and nature of God that stands before and behind all of his promises. To say that God's promises are not true, as these false teachers were doing, is to say that God is not God. And that means saying that he is not true, faithful, just, holy, righteous, and everything else that makes him God. You see, these questions, false teachers in Peter's day and Jude's day, these questions undermine the very character and nature of God. They call into question God's veracity, his truthfulness. 
And so I'd like to look at this briefly this morning under three headings. The glory of God in his eternity or eternality, whichever you prefer. The fact that he is eternal. The glory of God in his patience. And the glory of our God in his faithfulness. I want you to know at the very beginning that Peter brings in this very familiar theme of remembering. He tells them, I want you to remember, do not overlook this fact. We remember that from Jude. Jude says, we we remember God made this promise. We remember he promised long ago that he will judge the wicked. Though the ungodly seem to prosper, do not fret. God will judge them. Do not let this one fact escape you. Do not ignore this one thing. And so those three things, the first, the glory of God in his eternality, his eternity. Notice what he says in verse 8. Remember, do not overlook this one fact, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Now, you know this verse, and many of you have heard it used to support all kinds of errors, some insist, for instance, that this, for instance, that this verse teaches that when we read about a day in Bible prophecy, we're always talking about a thousand years. So when you get to Revelation, you can have lots of fun with this verse and applying it, I believe, wrongly to what Revelation teaches. Others like to use this verse as a proof text to give them warrant to say that when God created the world, as the scriptures so clearly teach, As history in the book of Genesis, in six ordinary days, that that can mean something other than six ordinary, literal 24-hour days. And so they teach, based on this particular verse, that God made the world over a period of thousands, if not many, many more years. Now, we don't need to argue about the age of the earth, whether it's young or old. We don't need to do that this morning. But what we can say, I believe, very rightly, is that using this verse in this context to try to distort and describe what Moses writes very clearly as history is really a wrong use of it. There is no warrant in this text to think that Peter is imagining that this would have application to that teaching of Moses. Peter is clearly speaking by using this Phrase or this picture of a thousand years as a day, etc., he's clearly speaking about the eternity of God. The fact that God is not bound by time. He is outside of time. He's the creator of time. He is above time. He's sovereign over time. He controls time. He works within time. But he himself is not bound by time. And so it is the same from God's perspective to say a thousand years or a day. His perspective, neither of them are different. They're they're not different from each other. They're the same to him because there is no time to which he is bound. He's speaking here to believers, to human beings, to creatures. And he's telling them that, as Peter writes, that time has no bearing upon me. That what God does, he does and an eternal present before his eyes, if you will. He lives and, an exi- and exists in the eternal present. Everything is the, if you will, same time to him. He is outside of time in that sense. 
It is what he meant when he said to Moses that very critical phrase and revelation in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses says, who do I tell Pharaoh is that sends me? Tell them that I am has sent you. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God who eternally exists, has no beginning and no end. When Jesus in John 8 took that name, the great I am, that name of God, and applied it to himself. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am, he said. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, immediately understood what he was claiming. He was claiming to be God because he was claiming to be eternal outside of time. And so they took up stones ready to kill him. They appeared, or he appeared in their eyes, to be a mere man. Jesus claimed by the use of that name to be God. Before the mountains were brought forth, Moses wrote in Psalm 90, Wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The psalmist in Psalm 102, of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They're bound by time. They will all wear out, bound by time, like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you remain and are the same, and your years, there's the language of time, have no end. They have no end. We are not like that. We're not like that at all. But he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are bound by time. We think, and we can't help but think in reference to time. We cannot rightly comprehend eternity except in the simplest of ways, in that it is time without end. We have to be rooted in time. We see a day as 24 hours. We see a thousand years as something forever. And yet, to God, they are the same. To us, they are not. And so we only have time to deal with. And so people fix days and years as to when Christ will return. They figure it out. They put all together the, the prophecies of the Old and New Testament, and they say it's going to be this time. How many times do we need to do it and be proven wrong to understand that God is not bound by our time or imagination? We look at 2,000 years and tempted to think that Christ may never come back. We are lulled in complacency, sluggishness. We find ourselves no longer learn, longing for his appearing as if he might come today. We have, according to Peter, Peter fallen asleep, as Peter says in verse 1 of this chapter. And we need to be stirred up, roused from our sleep. That's really a rebuke in that verse. Remember, beloved, God is above time. He does not operate by our standards. And so we ought not to seek to fix times, to figure out times. That's why the teaching of Jesus on his coming is so very clear. Don't try to fix times, determine it. But always, he says, be ready. For it will come, as Peter himself says, like a thief in the night. It will come at a time where you have not expected it. So the onus upon us is to always be ready. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary, makes this wonderful point. Let us keep our eyes upon moral conditions 
and not upon setting dates. That is what determines God's intervention in time and history. And so it will be when Christ returns. Now that statement may be a little disarming for you because you think about the moral conditions of our nation and you wonder whether God's judgment and timing isn't fast approaching. Don't try to set dates, but think about, he's right, I think, the moral conditions. That is when God seems to intervene in history, when they have reached such a level that his forbearance and patience wanes, because it does wane. He will not always be patient. Timothy then receives these words from Paul in 2 Timothy 3, but understand this, that in the last days, which of course are from the time of Christ's ascension until his second coming, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. You can put those verses over almost everything you read on Instagram, TikTok, whatever you use. You can put it over every newspaper and every news report that we see because that's the times in which we live. It sounds so much like the times of Jude and of Peter, as he described in such great detail in Jude, the false teachers and the kinds of lives that their false teaching led to. Well, we see here the glory of God, first in this sense. Secondly, we see the glory of God in his patience. This is really the crux of the verse, isn't it? His patience The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, he says. The promise here, of course, is the promise of his coming. And then Peter adds, as some people count slowness. We have a way to count slowness. When you're getting ready for something and the one person in your family who is always the last to get ready, we know what slowness means. Families have people who eat really fast, other people who eat really slow. We know what slowness means. We, we judge it by time. But Peter is saying here, God is patient. The language I love is long-suffering. He suffers long. How far above he is than we are. We are anything but patient, especially in our immediate gratification society, which has been hardwired into us. We are far from patient. I I used to think myself as a patient man. I no longer think myself that way. We're not patient, but God is, and that's his point. The Lord is not slow, not slow to fulfill his promise, but he is patient, long-suffering. Jesus said, as he came to this earth, I have come to show you the Father. And there were many places where he showed us the Father and the character of the Father, which, of course, the Son shares, being God himself. And so, as we think of the many instances, we think of Luke 9, for instance. You remember that account as 
The glory of God here is seen in his patience. Luke writes, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he he had set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said what we would have said. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? There's no patience there. There's no waiting on the kindness and mercy of God towards sinners. There is just an immediate response in time, in space, and says, we're done with these people. Send fire from heaven, consume them, and we'll move on. Remember Jesus' rebuke, but he turned and he rebuked them. And so they went on to another village. You see, the reality is of history and of everything we see in our own lives, that God doesn't judge immediately, does he? We, we know that if he did, we wouldn't be sitting here today. None of us, sinners as we are, but God was patient towards us. His disciples had no patience for this kind of waiting, but God is patient. He is long-suffering. He's waiting. Now, why is he waiting? The third answer that we give here is the answer to that question. Why is he waiting? Why does he exhibit such patience throughout history? Why is he doing this today? Why isn't Jesus coming back? Haven't we gotten wicked enough as a world? Well, look at the answer he gives. It's really part of the same verse. And it's just this two words. But he is patient toward you. He's patient toward you. This is the glory of God in his faithfulness. The reason given as to why God is long-suffering, why he is patient, why the teaching of these false teachers to say, where is the promise of his coming? He's done this over and over again. He's promised, but he never does. And and so we can do and live as we please because he's not true. What he says isn't true. Peter says, no, there's something you're not understanding, he says. He's patient, yes, and there's a glory in his patience, but he is patient toward you. And this, brothers and sisters, is the key to understanding this passage. This passage has been distorted, twisted to say things the Bible never says. It's made to say something in this passage that in other passages the Bible clearly rejects. He is patient, he says, toward you. Who are the you? To the people to whom Peter writes to the beloved of God, those who are called in Jesus Christ and kept for him, according to Jude. The demonstration of his patience is for his people, whom he is calling out of the world. The you here is critical, patient toward you, not wishing that any of you or the elect should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's Peter's point. Don't lose sight of it, he says. God's patience is for you and for the elect of God that he is calling out of the world and drawing in faith to Jesus Christ, uniting them with him and making them part of his people and becoming a father to them. This is critical in our understanding of what this means. When it says he's not wishing that any should perish, it's not a statement 
about that God's desire is that everyone individually in all the world in all of time would come to faith in Jesus Christ. We know that that's not true. We, we know the Bible in so many places describes what God's purpose and will is, as difficult as that is for us to comprehend and understand. And I hope we see it as we continue even this morning. There's a common view that this verse or this passage declares, you know it well perhaps, What is God's attitude towards sinners, this author writes? Does he pick and choose among them so that this one he loves and this one he hates? This one he wants to save and this one he has no concern for? Is that God's attitude towards sinners? Is that the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ towards sinners? Thank God we know, he writes, from the Bible that this is not his attitude. God's loving heart has deep concern for every lost sinner. And God wants men, all men, everywhere to be saved. How plainly the scriptures remind us of that in 2 Peter 3.9. He's wrong. That's not the attitude of God. God does have his elect. That's a very common view in the broad evangelical church, but it is wrong. It's rooted in wrong assumptions. It's rooted in a wrong understanding of this passage. I mean, no disrespect to those who may hold it, but Peter is not talking about what God's desire is for all mankind without exception. He's writing to believers and he's trying to encourage them not to lose heart not to fall in with these false teachers, to believe that God somehow is lying to them. But he is saying to them, God is patient. He is long-suffering for their sakes so that all of his elect, all of them shall come to repentance. You see, God does have a people. He does have a people. Peter talks about it. Paul talks about it. Jesus talks about it. We studied that in John 17, how the language of the Father and the Son is the language of all of those whom you have given to me. That's a select group rooted not in man's deserving. We've done nothing to be part of it or to, ex- or to receive it, but in only in God's sovereign mercy and love. But God does have a people that he has chosen to call out of this dark world. And for their sakes, he is patient and long-suffering. And he is not willing that any of them, not one of them should perish, but every single one of them should come to repentance according to the purpose of God and to the glory of his name. Peter, as he writes these verses to encourage this people, talking about days and years, is exalting the God of whom he writes. He wants them to see the glory of God in his eternity, his patience, and his faithfulness to all that he has promised. Because that's what we're talking about, his faithfulness to his promises, that he will indeed save a people, that he will give to the Son And the son paying the price for that people will in turn on the day of judgment give to the father that people now cleansed by his blood to the glory of the father 
and the Son and the Spirit because salvation is all the work of God from first to last. And that is what Peter is trying to encourage these people and us as well this morning as we've studied Jude. We've struggled with why his emphasis upon these wicked. Why doesn't he just wipe them out? The same answer is, is in Jude as is here. He's doing it all patiently, long-suffering for the sake of his elect. Two things as we close. This is shorter than we normally go, but bear with me as we close in these two points to remember First, the patience of God, his forbearance and long-suffering, leads always, always, always to faithful service to God. His patience and long-suffering is not simply that we would sit back, be confident, take a deep breath, and say, well, God's got all of this under control. I can just kind of sit and wait on Jesus No, notice what Peter does as he talks about the day of the Lord coming in verse 10, like a thief in the night, the elements and the earth itself and the works that are done in it will be burned up with fire. It'll be renewed earth and heavens. Notice what he then says in verse 11. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See what Peter's natural understanding is according to the Spirit? The patience of God that we struggle with. Why is God allowing the wicked to prosper? We, we now know why, according to Peter. It's so that the elect, all whom God has chosen, would come to repentance, to trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those that he has chosen and for whom Christ has died. Peter says this leads to something, not complacency, not hiding in our houses and in our churches, but actually aggressively, if you will, living lives of holiness and of godliness, exalting the Lord in all of his character, in all of his being, in everything that we do. If God chooses a people, it really does, it really does matter how we live. If I'm chosen by God, I am chosen unto holiness and righteousness of life. It's a distortion to think that God chooses me. I can just rest and not worry about doing anything. Well, if I have nothing to do with it, then I don't have anything to do with losing it either. I'm chosen, I'm chosen. That's a distortion of these truths. And Peter and Paul all speak very directly to that. Peter says this understanding leads to a life of holiness and godliness. Because those who are called, those who are justified are those also who are sanctified by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, brothers and sisters, as you wait, as you understand the patience and long-suffering of God so that the elect and all whom God has called will come and not one will be lost, be faithful, be diligent until he comes. 
be circumspect, be sober-minded, as Peter says so often. What kind of people ought we to be as we wait? Be diligent in all that you do, knowing that your labors in the Lord are not in vain. Secondly, the patience of God leads to a sure hope, a sure hope and confidence. Pastor Fisher was going to preach this morning in Mark. He was going to give you hope for fragile followers. We're going to sing a hymn at the end, which fits well here. He will not. He will hold me fast. The patience of God leads leads to a sure hope. You see, God knew all of this in rearranging everything that we were doing. He knew I would choose this passage because of our study in Jude. He knew of Pastor Fisher's sickness. He knew of my coming home earlier. And in all of this, he weaves it all together so that we might have the confidence that he is our God and that he knows us and what we have need of. God is faithful in all of his ways. He will bring to pass everything that he has promised. I think we saw that when we studied John 17, but you may remember from John 6 how Jesus speaks. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father has given to me, there's the elect. There's that group of people chosen by God. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I should raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father who is long-suffering and patient, I added that, according to Peter, who is faithful to everything that he has promised that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, the patience of God leads to our sure hope. Christ and the Father are one. His patience and long-suffering is to gather his elect in and to secure them in his care. Believer, as you wait for his return, you have a life to live to his glory. You need not worry or question what God is doing, how long it's taking him. All he does, he does for the display of his glory. He is glorifying himself as he waits patiently. And as he waits, he is gathering in his elect. And when that is done, Christ will come. Until then, until he comes, go and labor on. Until then, go and bear witness to Christ in all that you do. Until then, pray and long for his coming and look for it expectantly, prepared and ready for his coming. Whenever he comes, it matters not today, tomorrow, next week, next year. It doesn't matter when he comes. He's giving us marching orders for the time in which we have, and we are to be faithful in doing it. And leave the long-suffering to God, who will, in fact, bring all things to pass according to his perfect plan and for his glory. But we ought not to leave all of this without a warning that is implicit all throughout. The warning, of course, is to unbelievers, those who do not know or trust the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never come to faith in him. 
Perhaps somewhere deep in your mind, you have fallen prey to the teaching that says, well, God has talked about this ever since the beginning, and he hasn't showed up yet, so I think I'm safe. God is patient. He is long-suffering for a reason until his elect are gathered in. But his patience will end one day. And so Matthew Henry says these words, and they're so fitting. Abuse not, he says, therefore, the patience and long-suffering of God by abandoning yourselves to a course of ungodliness. Presume not to go on boldly in the way of sinners, nor to sit down securely in an unconverted and impenitent state, as he who said, My Lord delays his coming, lest he come and surprise you. You need not do that, but you need to hear the call of Christ to all, to all who would hear, come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you true rest. Let us pray. Father, as we consider your patience and long-suffering, we are mindful of how easy it is for us to wonder whether or not it is all really true. But you have told us it is, and you do not lie. You have told us the reason for your patience. It is for the gathering of the elect. And you have told us that when that time comes, indeed Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. May all who are present here this morning know that when he comes, they are safe in him. And if there be any here who have not yet given their lives to Christ, who have not yet believed the gospel, may you so work by your sovereignty and by your spirit to draw them unto faith in Jesus Christ, that they might know the joy, the peace, and the security that is found only in him. We pray this with great thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's a great hymn to end with. I'm thankful in God's sovereignty we can end with it. It's in your songbooks. It's number five in the black songbook, He Will Hold Me Fast. Let us stand as we pray together, or as we sing together. Prayer comes after. <laughs> 